it was pretty tough. I mean, the cost was was big. We put a case together against Mugabe for what he was doing, and they were desperate that this case didn't get heard. And so we were abducted and we were tortured. Well, hello, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo with Inspired, and I'm thrilled this week to have one of my heroes. His name's Ben Threef. Hi, Ben. Hi there, Simon. And Ben has uh, written a couple of books describing his incredible story. It is a truly extraordinary story. It's uh, The first book was called Mugabe and the White African. We share that in common as, as, as white Africans. Uh, but uh, you've been through a whole lot worse stuff than me, including well, taking on Mugabe and his horrific policies of farm repossession. You were beaten up. Your father-in-law suffered horrific damage, uh, which led to his death. And, and then your farm was burnt down. We're going to come to all that in due course, but it's great to have you with us. And we look forward to hearing about it. And uh, you've also written, I think, another book, didn't you, in, in partnership with... Uh... Yeah, that's that's right, Simon. Um... When Governments Stumble was, was the second book about um, what we should do in, in instances where we feel as Christians that governments are going down the wrong road. Um, right. And I think it's, it's also a, a pertinent thing for these times as well. Yeah, so I'm so looking forward. Welcome, Ben. And uh, I really I, I loved in a painful way reading that book about a decade ago. Um, it really uh, cut me deeply. And so it's a real privilege to have you now with us on Inspired. So Ben, why don't you sort of set the scene in terms of giving us a bit of context, your background? How did it all start? Um, my, my father was British Army. And so I only got to Zimbabwe as, an, as, a, as a teenager, a young teenager. Um, and I was... Before that, living in different countries. Um, but my wife's family have been white Africans for the last 300 years. Um, and we only ended up in Zimbabwe just after independence, um, where my father was setting up the staff college. So I was a young teenager at the time and uh, fell in love with, with Zimbabwe and with Africa. And of course, um, later on with my wife-to-be, um, and uh, made my life in Zimbabwe. So I've lived there most of my life, but I wasn't born there. But it is very much part of me. So you had a relatively privileged childhood, I'm guessing. That's how I picture the sort of white lifestyle in Zimbabwe. Would that be fair? <laughs> well, I, I think, um, you know, my... My childhood was, was perhaps slightly different in that being a British Army son, um, I was sent overseas to, to boarding school. But certainly back in Zimbabwe uh, in the early 80s, it was, um, it was a strange time. Um, there'd just been a, a civil war going on between the old... Uh, Rhodesian forces, and then there was Zanla, which was Mugabe's army, and there was Zipra, which was Joshua and Komo um, from the southern part of the country, the Matabili people, um, his army. So um, Mugabe's army was was Chinese trained. The Nkomo's army was was Russian trained. There was the Rhodesian army, and then there was also the Fourth Brigade, which was Mugabe's private army. Um, that was North Korean trained. So these four different armies were suddenly 
brought together um, and dad was involved in setting up the staff college to try and uh, create a, a peaceful environment um, for the country going on into independence. Um, so it was a, a challenging time. Um, and of course, at the time uh, the, when we first got there, the 5th Brigade were, were, were busy killing a, a lot of people in the south of the country. There were about 20,000 civilians killed in the south of the country. And one of dad's um, students was the commander who had uh, just done that, um, along with... Um, the, the the current vice president, the guy who affected the coup back in November 2017, um, who who is uh, Chuenga, um, he is the current vice president of of Zimbabwe. So they were both students of Dad's. Um, so it was it was a, a an interesting time for us, um, and but a time that that I really got to love the country. I got to love its people. Um, and, and I fell in love with the, with the whole thought of, of, of going farming in, in Zimbabwe and eventually ended up marrying a farmer's daughter and living on the farm and, and farming until the invasions started in, in the year 2000. So um, it was uh, a lovely time that, that we had there. Um, but then things started to get really, really difficult. So up to year 2000, it was relatively stable. I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff going on in the background, but uh, it was then particularly that things kicked off for you? Yes. You see, what happened was Mugabe had managed to maintain a one-party state all the way from 1980 until 1999, but then an opposition was finally formed. The Berlin Wall had come down and, and there was kind of less ability by him to maintain a, a one-party state as things opened up around the world with the end of the Cold War. And an opposition party was formed. And, and what happened in 2000 was an election was called. And... Uh, before the election happened in the June of 2000, Mugabe wanted to entrench his power by putting together a new constitution. And it went to a referendum and the people voted that they didn't want this new constitution, which would have allowed him to take land for free uh, without compensating people. And the people voted against it. And, and he realized that he was going to lose the election in, in that June. And so what happened was he unleashed the war veterans that from 20 years ago, although many of them weren't even actually born in 1980. They were young, unemployed youths mostly um, to come and invade farms and terrorize the farms um, because essentially what he was trying to do was uh, make sure that no farm workers voted um, against him. Uh, and so they needed to be brought into a state of fear. Um, and we had, we had a lot of beatings and a lot of killings and a lot of um, you know, very severe things happen from then on whilst the farms were being distributed to uh, senior members of 
of the cabinet and of uh, all the MPs and judges and senior members of army and police and um, that sort of thing were all all given farms in order to buy their loyalty. So it was a very difficult time from there on uh, in which, um, I mean, even today I got a phone call because uh, it's carrying on even now. Uh, I got a phone call from a guy who had just been beaten up He's just on a small holding, elderly man. He tried to stop some people cutting some trees on his property. Uh, and they beat him up and they shot him. Um, fortunately, the gun misfired on the second shot and he, he, he is all right. But um, he, it, it's, it's distressing that these things just, just carry on and on and on um, yeah. over the last 20 years. Yeah. You know, for, for those, most people, I think, listening to this, live in countries where there is the rule of law, um, so cannot relate on any level to what you'll have been through. Can you describe to us what it's like to live without law? Yeah, it's a, it's a very strange thing. I, I think none of us appreciate law until law is taken away from us. Uh, no one, uh, we, we had no idea what it would be like to live without the rule of law. And, and essentially, you know, the, the rule of law uh, allows us to live with a degree of security in our own homes, to go about our businesses without being interfered with, um, allows us to live what we would call a, a normal, peaceful um, existence. And as soon as the rule of law is taken away and the criminal elements in society are unleashed to do their worst, uh, and suddenly you're not safe in your own home. In fact, they can come and surround your home and take you out of your home and beat you up and, and even kill you uh, with, with no consequences and take away your business. And uh, things become very, very difficult. To, you know, obviously, there is tremendous fear. There is a tremendous sort of feeling of, of uh, uncertainty. Uh, there's there's panic often uh, within communities. It, it it becomes really really difficult to operate. And and you know what they did was that they made sure that where neighbours came around to to help in situations, they were then targeted as well. And so basically, you ended up completely on your own. Mm. And as Christians. Well, certainly as our family, I'm not, although my, my father was in the, in the army and my grandfather and great-grandfather, I'm not trained in any kind of military stuff. I, I didn't own any weapons. Uh, and I, I decided that, my, that, that the best way to try to deal with this whole situation would be to not even have a weapon um, because you were totally outnumbered if, if you did. And, and early on, what happened was they did make an example uh, or a few examples of people that did try to defend themselves uh, and brought in um, snipers and uh, lots of armed people with AK-47s to actually physically um, kill them. Um, and, and so we realized very early on that this was not something that you could operate against with any any force at all and 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 so you know it was a strange thing 
for us, we realized that our only source of, of protection was the Lord. Um, mm-hmm. It was only God that would be able to, to protect us in the situation that we were in. And so we, sort of, we learned to live with, with great faith, and we learned what it is to, to really depend on God for every day uh, and every night um, for, for our lives. And um, in many ways, it was, although a very traumatic time, it was a great time to grow in, in our faith and to understand how amazing um, God is and, and how mm. the Bible um, just comes to life in those kind of life death death situations yeah. that go on for for years and years. So, although I look back and you know it was obviously very traumatic in many ways, it was a time that I don't regret in in any way at all. Uh, I believe that God worked mightily in our lives at that time, and um, it has given us a tremendous testimony of his goodness, of his protecting hand, of his, of his love in, in all these different situations that we faced. So yeah, rule of law being taken away is a terrible thing. Um, but for us, it was also something that I believe God allowed to take place um, in order to, to test our faith and to bring us closer to him. Um, which ultimately is the most important thing. Ben, when you said uh, a few moments ago, you've got no regrets, I always sort of push back on people when they say, you know, in any situation, no regrets, just because it's such a, it's quite a profound thing to say, bearing in mind what happened. Can you tell us sort of the cost to you and your family personally, what it's looked like? Well, it, 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 it was pretty it was pretty tough. I mean, the cost was was big. I think, as you as you mentioned earlier on, we decided as a family that we had to stand in the gap, um, that we had to, as Christians, be counted. These terrible things were happening, and, and so we took the decision that we had to, with the breakdown of the rule of law, use the law to uh, try and reassert, reassert some sort of normality within Zimbabwe because people were starving. People were um, in, in desperate plights as a result of this lawlessness that was taking place. With this, with this terrible fear, no organization wants to take on a government because they know that they will be targeted if they do. And um, we realized that there was going to be no organization that would take a case against Mugabe, essentially, for doing what he was doing to the people of Zimbabwe. And we decided that as a family, we had to, um, we had to do this. This was a calling that was heavily upon my heart to stand for justice in a situation where there was terrible injustice. And so we put a case together against Mugabe for what he was doing. And anyone who had taken cases previously was immediately targeted. And lawyers' offices were were ransacked. Um, Lawyers' wives were were actually raped. Uh, Some lawyers kind of left 
the country as, as, as totally broken people because of what was what was taking place against against them as, as lawyers um, mm. personally as well yeah. but we we had a wonderful Christian lawyer David Drury who is a very brave man a very humble man and he looked through all the cases that he had and he said well you know I think your case is, is the best case that we could use because you've tried to protect yourselves you know with law all the way through and so we were kind of the test case. And I remember when my father-in-law signed the papers, I knew the cost was going to be great. Uh, in fact, there were tears running my, down my cheeks when he signed because I knew what the cost was going to be. But I knew at the same time that it was a calling that we, that we had to go through. And so we went to the Supreme Court and we had a hearing in the Supreme Court. We knew that we were going to lose in the Supreme Court because all the judges had all received bombs and there was no way that they were going to be impartial in, in their deliberations. Uh, but we knew that we had a strong case um, in law and in international law. And it was amazing. Within a week of our hearing in the Supreme Court, the SEDEC Tribunal opened for business. Now, the SEDEC Tribunal is something that I never knew anything about. None of the lawyers knew anything about. It had been part of the Southern African Development Community um, intention to develop a court, but we, we didn't think that it was going to actually happen. But it opened for business. And this was a, 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 the highest court within the 15 nations of the Southern African Development Community. Mm -hmm. And we were suddenly in a position where we would be able to go to the SEDEC tribunal if things failed us in the Supreme Court. They then went ahead and they arrested my father-in-law um, and put him on a charge of criminally being on his own farm and farming. And we were all liable to be arrested, uh, including all the farm workers under the same charge. And that kind of gave us the opportunity to then go to the tribunal, which we did. And a week before, or 10 days before the main case was due to be heard, they abducted us and they tortured us. Um, and they tried to get us to withdraw from the court because they realized that this would be a tremendous embarrassment for them, where an impartial court was with five judges from the Southern African development community would be um, ruling on a case which was pretty well cut and dried. I mean, there's no way that in international law, people should be able to take other people's property in the way that it was happening and criminally um, prosecute people for living on farms that they had bought with their own money um, and worked hard on um, to, to pay off loans and things. And so, um, they, want, they were desperate that this case didn't get heard in this SEDEC tribunal. And, and so we were abducted and we were tortured. Um, I had a fractured skull and broken ribs and um, very severe bruising all, all over me. Um, and, and my father-in-law actually never, never fully recovered. And um, he, he was beaten with an iron bar on his head many, many times, about 60 times, and, um, and, and subsequently died. My mother-in-law um, 
they they broke her arm very badly and and at one point they they thrust a burning stick into her mouth and so the cost was great. Eventually, they actually um, burnt my house down with, with, with everything in it. They, they burnt my father-in-law's house down with everything in it. Um, they, they burnt various workers' houses who, who were loyal with, with, with everything in them. And um, we suffered you know, very severe persecution as a result of of going to court and, and, and trying to bring back rule of law and, and trying to stand in the gap for justice in the nation. Um, so yes, the cost, the cost was great. The cost was great, Simon. Um, and, and the cost is still great. Um, the cost is still great. That the, There are still repercussions as a result of the various things that we went through and, and the continuing kind of deterioration that takes place in Zimbabwe um, yeah. in terms of rule of law issues. But I believe that as Christians, we are called to do certain things. And, and in our case, we were called to, to stand for justice. And, and, and this is what we've done. Well, Ben, uh, I salute you. And, and you know what? I mean, our situations are obviously quite different, but there are similarities. And I just feel like, you know, I had discussions with my wife about whether she was ready to be a young widow when I proposed to her. And I, there were times when I thought, Lord, is this going to cost us our kids uh, during periods of real lawlessness? And is my wife going to get raped? Are we, uh, you know, is this really worth it? And I, I definitely came to the same conclusion as you, but I never, it never happened to us. So I guess I just feel a sort of sense of identification and but vicarious sort of I don't know relief that it didn't happen to me but wanting to say that I would be willing to do it and I guess most people listening I guess would be honest and say because the reality is that you are just about the only ones or certainly a very small minority that ultimately were willing to stand in that gap and most people didn't and speaking from a, a western context the church we are so on the back foot and so flabby and there's such a lack of courage. I would go so far as to say that, you know, we, we're cowards speaking from England right now in terms of standing up for what we know to be biblical norms for fear of the flack we're going to get. And I just think that uh, your example uh, is a real challenge, a real challenge to me uh, and a real encouragement that, yes, it is worth paying the real price. Now, we, when I, I, I put those words into in your mouth in a sense there about being... Uh, a very significant minority. Were there any other people standing with you? There were, um, Simon. I mean, it was, it was um, because of the levels of fear, you can understand that people wouldn't overtly want to stand with us. And in fact, in our community, which, you know, we were very much part of, you know, people didn't want to associate with us. We, we were not able to go to Farmers Association meetings, for example, any longer because we no one wanted to be tarnished uh, mm. with the same brush uh, and be seen with us. And so, you know, to to a large degree, we were kind of ostracised um, publicly from being able to associate with people, and and we really learned who was who. Yeah. as a result of that time, who did have courage, who 
who um, was prepared to um, associate with us uh, in, in this kind of situation. And um, it, it, was, it was very, very humbling having those friends who, who were prepared to, to stand with us um, and who were um, prepared to, to come to our home and prepared to be seen um, publicly with us. Uh, it, it was very humbling um, getting to, to know who those people were and very special. And, and those friendships, uh, those relationships that, that you have with, with, with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ um, are, are something that uh, will endure forever, whatever happens. And, 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 and so that's something incredibly valuable, incredibly special. Yeah. Can I ask you, this is quite a thorny question, maybe. I mean, you're white, I'm white, uh, we're both white Africans in a black continent. So listening to you, we all see things through our, our racial lens. Um, I'm just trying to put myself in the place of a, a black listener right now and then saying, well, you know, what the heck are these guys got? They've got all the land, all these white people have got all the land and all these black people are poor. You know, that's simplistic. But can you, can you speak into that in terms of the, the lack of justice of who had how much land and the quality of the land? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously something that the government tries to use to justify what it's done. And, and, and so it's something that um, is a big propaganda tool um, but that's used by government. And, um, but just to put the facts on the, on the table, at independence in 1980, uh, about 30% of Zimbabwean land was in the hands of white farmers. By the year 2000, it was around about 18%. Um, and that large amount of land that was transferred between 1980 and 2000 had all been done in a peaceful manner, willing seller, willing buyer, totally lawful, no issues. You know, so what, what then happened in 2000, this sort of violent redistribution that, that took place, um, I don't believe can be, can be justified in any way because it was, it was happening anyway. Um, and I think just in, in, in terms of, of, of land ownership and, and things like that in different countries, you know, here in Britain, the vast majority of land is, is also in, in few people's hands. Um, it's the same in, 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 in almost any country that you care to look at because only, well, in, in this country, Britain, only 2% of people are, are farmers or, or involved with growing food for the other 98% of the population. Uh, not everyone wants to be a farmer. Um, and, and certainly I remember at school when when uh, we were asked, I, I remember it so well, I was in fourth form and I was asked, we were all asked uh, what we wanted to be. And, and I, I was very proud to say that I wanted to be a farmer. And, and everyone kind of looked at me, the teacher looked at me, everyone looked at me as though I was absolutely mad. Why would you want to be a farmer? Getting up early in the morning, having sort of uh, 24-hour days very often, um, having all the various problems that, that farmers have um, where you're kind of very tied to, to the land because things go wrong if you're not there. 
And not everyone wants to be a lawyer. Not everyone wants to be a doctor. Not everyone wants to be uh, all the various different professions that people choose in life. So I, I think, you know, it's very easy to say, be simplistic and say, well, white people shouldn't have been owning land at all because Africa is a black continent. Um, but I believe that that's just as racial uh, 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 as anything else. And, and I think we have to get past this whole thing of skin color and be able to say, well, you know, if you're, if you're a black guy and you want to be a farmer, then you must be a farmer. If you're a white guy, you want to be a farmer, then you must be a farmer. It shouldn't be this kind of this, this um, differentiation seems to happen. And, and I mean, we've seen it in the last year with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, where again, it's, it's, it's kind of stigmatizing and, and creating this, this barrier and this guilt and this, um, you know, all these differences uh, are, are being accentuated. I, I think that's totally wrong as, as Christians. We shouldn't be uh, going down that road. Each of us is created in the image of God. Each of us is special. Each of us is unique. Each of us has been given a plan by God if we would only follow it. Um, and that plan is not to, to get all hung up with this, this whole issue, I don't believe. Mm. Hi, folks. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, it'd be great if you shared it with as many of your mates as possible so other people get to hear about it. And listen, if you would like to support our work in Burundi, which is the hungriest country in the world, I'd love support there too. You can do that by going to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired. Now let's get back to the podcast. And I mean, we know it. Af uh, Zimbabwe was the, the breadbasket of Southern Africa. It was called that, wasn't it? It was providing food for five other countries. And, and now... Many Zimbabweans are way beneath the breadline and, and struggling to feed themselves. And I'm guessing you and other colleagues, fellow farmers, you employed hundreds of people. And, and then new people came in without any knowledge of how to farm. It's a very technical skill, isn't it? And, and th therefore the farms became completely bankrupt and, and just disastrous policy. Yeah, that's right, Simon. I mean, on, on our farm, we... We had mangoes and we had citrus and we had wildlife and we had cattle and, and, and we, we had about 500 people on the farm who were dependent on, on the farm operating. And when we left, it was all fully functioning. In fact, we left at, at a time when all the crops were ready for harvest and all the inputs had been put into those crops, all the the things for the, for, for the next crop were, were in place, the fertilizer, the chemicals, and everything else. And all it needed was um, someone who was a farmer to, to carry on, and it would, would be a productive farm today if that had happened. There were no debts, and they took over absolutely everything. So they took over this whole harvest. They took over all the tractors. They took over, um, and this was a, a government minister, an educated person who had been to university in the States and, and all sorts of things. And within a season, the whole place was, was rack and ruin. Um, Tragic. Not a single animal was left alive on the farm. Uh, all the fruit trees had had fires go through them. Uh, the houses were burnt down. Obviously, the, uh, the workers were all unemployed and hungry. Um, and 
and it was a, a total disaster. So yeah, th- this is tragic. This is tragic for the community. No one has gained from this situation. Yeah. So when, and, and this is a really difficult question, I think, you, you wrote the book with, with Bear Grylls, uh, when governments stumble, lessons from Zimbabwe's past and hopes for Africa's future. I mean, I've wrestled with in our war situation in Burundi, and, and there's so many sort of bleak uh, indicators of, you know, being the hungriest country in the world, having the highest rate of malnutrition, that sort of stuff. The biggest challenge I've had, I think, has been clinging to hope. Can you speak into how you remain hopeful? Yeah, Simon, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because um, we do see uh, so many desperate things in, in Africa. Um, and yet, it's the wealthiest continent on Earth. Um, we, in terms of our natural resources, we've got 30% of the world's natural resources. We've got the best agricultural potential of any continent on, on Earth. We should be feeding the world and yet, we have to put the begging bowl out uh, all the time, and we've got such such hunger, we've got such suffering that takes place, uh, and it's not it's not as a result of of the continent itself. It's as a result of the leaders who erode the rule of law, who take away the rule of law, and don't allow the God given potential of the individual to be realised on the continent and and that is our our biggest problem um in in africa is is our leaders who want absolute power uh, who who do not want independent judiciaries who do not want laws that that protect the people they want laws that protect themselves and 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 this is the whole uh problem going back through the history of mankind it's the whole problem of sin and it needs i believe it needs a a, a whole new look it needs an understanding that this is sin that is structural sin that that there is need for repentance that there is a need for putting in place godly principles within nations and and i think the reason why I am uh, hopeful for the future, despite what is happening in the present and has been happening in my own life for, for so many years, is that there is a movement towards Christ. There is a movement towards knowing that he is the answer. And although uh, still there is this battle taking place, this Ephesians 6 kind of battle taking place, uh, within the nations, um, where Satan is 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 moving, and and you know, anyone from the secular society would 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 say that I'm I'm speaking very much out of turn in, w- when I say this, but I believe that there is uh, this great battle taking place in in the heavenlies over Africa right now, and I believe that we are seeing. Or we have seen over the years, the forces of darkness coming over the nation, over the, the continent. But we are also seeing sparks of hope. We are seeing sparks where the God of love, the God who casts out all fear, the God who brings law and order, the God who is able to 
defeat the darkness, the God of light is moving on the continent of, of Africa. And, you know, it took many years after the word of God came first to this country of, of, of England before finally it started to take root and finally yeah. uh, things started to move in, in, in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And finally people were, were, were being properly protected and, and the king was, was brought under the law, yeah. you know, through Magna Carta and, uh, and subsequent events. And um, we, we have to realize that, that though we are so often uh, want things to happen now and, and we're so often very impatient, God has, has got his timing. And, and so long as we are faithful in trying to bring the things of God into the continent of Africa or, or wherever we are as Christians, then those seeds that we sow, it's not us that makes them grow, it's, it's God that makes them grow. And, yeah. and sometimes those seeds lie dormant for a while, but eventually they will grow. Yeah. And, and the, the word of God will not return void. And, and, and so these things that we, 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 must, we, must, um, we must have faith as we sow yeah. and know that, that things will happen in the future. And, and though, you know, it may take time and it may not even be in my lifetime or, or my children's lifetime, um, things, things will happen. We just need to remain faithful. Yes. I mean, from my perspective, I always say that the most amazing people I've ever met on the planet, they're all Burundians. They're all African brothers and sisters, because if you've been what these people have been through, my precious friends who've had their wives murdered and kids and rape and all that sort of stuff, and you're still trusting in God, you've still got a vibrant faith in Jesus, well, that crucible of suffering has so refined these beautiful, beautiful gems of faith. And so that always gives me a lot of hope myself. I find it very inspiring and a real privilege to journey alongside people who have been forced to embrace a, more, a deeper experiential reality of the resurrected Christ in their lives. And that's something that's hard for us from the Western world to be able to relate to in general. Listen, Ben, we are sort of coming into land. I, I'd love people to know how they can be in touch with you or what you want to plug and what you're doing now. And you know, how can Christians around the world help the persecuted and help Christians in general in Zimbabwe through what they're going and speak truth to power and be salt and light. Can you speak into that? No, thanks, Simon. Um, you know, one, one thing that we did do after my father-in-law died was um, I, I was at an airport um, and someone came up to me, a, a black Zimbabwean who, who had been studying in Germany, and he recognized me. Um, because he had seen the film Mugabe and the White African and, and um, he had just seen an obituary in The Economist magazine regarding my father-in-law, Mike Campbell. And, and he, said, um, he said, are you going to carry on the work that your father-in-law started? And I said, yes, I'm going to try and do what I can. Um, and he said, um, well, you need to set up the Mike Campbell Foundation. And um, Anyway, I was on my way to a Christian conference at the time called Focus in this country, in England, where I currently am right now. And, um, and so we kind of talked about it and, um, and, and set it up. And, and so that's what I've been involved with 
um, for the last 10 years is, is the Mike Campbell Foundation. And we, we carry on trying to restore people and restore justice with, within Zimbabwe um, and do what we can in the situations that we face. Um, and so whatever anyone can do to support that, um, that would be wonderful. Um, look it up on, on the internet, Mike Campbell Foundation. Um, but your prayers would be wonderful if you could just pray for uh, the Christians in Zimbabwe that we would um, be able to find courage, that we would be able to find unity, um, that we would be able to uh, stand in the gap and be uh, the light of Christ in uh, Zimbabwe. Um, we just pray that, that you will pray for, for that. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you to Ben Freeth. It's been a real privilege to hear some of your stories. So we'll put that in the blurb at the bottom if you want to check out the Mike Campbell Foundation. And let's be praying for the brothers and sisters in Zimbabwe for more to be raised up to stand in the gap. Ultimately, we follow the risen Jesus Christ, who was the absolute one who stood in the gap on our behalf. So, folks, I hope you've been inspired this week. I've been deeply challenged and stirred to keep going and be willing to embrace the cost, whatever that looks like, of saying Jesus is Lord. We're in very different contexts, but let's not be cowards. Let's be courageous. And I'd love to see you next week. I've got another fantastic guest with us. So do gossip this further, get other people to sign up. If you could give us a great review on iTunes, that'd be fantastic. If you want to be in touch with me at simongilbo.com or any of the social media platforms. But thank you, Ben. Bye for now, brother. Thank you very much, Simon. God bless you. All right, cheers then. Toodaloo, you guys. Bye.